0: This is episode 51 of Off Script with Trish Close. Intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Jackson County Judge David Hoppy. Hello, Judge Hoppy.
1: Hello. Good morning. Uh,
0: good morning. You said this is so appropriate because you are 51 years old. That's correct. And this is episode 51. Absolutely. How perfect. It's pretty perfect that you're here today. Symmetrical. <laughs> Good. I saw you at, it was a fundraiser for Hope Equestrian Center?
2: That's correct.
0: I see you at a lot of those kind of things. Though. We're on the same circuit. Yes, we are. Anytime there's a fundraiser that has to do with wine, I typically tend to be there. It's weird.
2: And I tend to be there if it's for charity.
0: Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> wait, let me back up. I am there also for charity. Yeah,
2: you actually do a lot. But now, I don't know how much the community knows. But oh, you, you hosted but the MPD awards. You did. At, you are at other functions that, and you work. You're not actually just there as a guest. You That's work, true.
0: So. I tried. That night I was there as a guest. It was a lot of fun. Really opened my eyes to <laughs> this amazing organization. We'll talk about that a little bit Absolutely. later.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, first of all, Judge Hoppy, where are you from originally?
2: That's a good question. Where am I from originally? I was born on a naval base Ooh. during the Vietnam War. Wow. Yeah, my father was an officer in the Seventh Fleet. The headquarters is in Yokosuka, in Japan. So You were I was, born in Japan? I was born in Japan. Yes.
0: I did not know this about you.
2: Yes. I was born in uh, 1967 in Japan at the Yokosuka Naval Hospital. And then um, my father served his time as a, a, I think he left as a lieutenant junior grade in the Navy. And Mm -hmm. then uh, we came back to the United States. I mainly lived in um, Michigan as a youth. Um, I think I was there from basically six months to about 12 and a half maybe 13.
0: Okay. Where were your parents from originally? My
2: parents are from uh, divergent places. Uh, my father grew up in a small place called Frank and Luce Township, which is really Bay City, Michigan. Okay. In a small neighborhood outside of Bay City. My mother grew up in uh, Solvay, New York. Um, basically, um, Syracuse, New York. So oh. she's from central New York. He's from Michigan. They met, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, he was at OCS, or Officer Candidate School, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Okay. And I think they had dated, I don't know, eight times, ten times. And uh, he was being uh, shipped out to go overseas, and uh, he asked her to come. Oh. So. uh, So
0: romantic.
2: It was. And actually, you know, one of those fortunate circumstances, my uncle, who's recently passed, was an Air Force officer during the war. Actually, he retired as a major in the Air Force, and he was flying planes during Vietnam. Wow. And he was based in Japan. So my Aunt Phil was living there um, with my Uncle Joe and their kids. So she moved over there Okay. in, I think, 1965.
0: A lot of military folks in your family. Yeah, that's just two. that generation. <laughs> yeah, that's just
2: that generation. Oh,
0: really? So, More? Yeah. So, in previous Well, I have generation.
2: another one coming up where my son, um, I don't know if you know this, he was they featured on the paper, he okay. got the Naval ROTC Scholarship. So he's at the University of Michigan right now wow. on a NROTC Scholarship. What's his name? Alex.
0: Go Alex. Yes. That's fantastic. Proud Great papa. Kid. Great kid. Fantastic. fantastic. Okay. So you grow up in Michigan? Is that like childhood yeah, for you? Yeah, kind
2: of, sort of. I'll, I'll say I'm kind of an East Coast person growing up. I uh, spent my first like I said, 12 years or so in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And my father worked for IBM at the time. Oh. Yeah, which also, instead of International Business Machines, stood for I've Been Moved. (laughs) So (laughs) we were uh, transferred, or my dad got a good job, in Boston Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and working in the office there. So uh, we moved to a small town outside of Boston called Acton. And I don't know if you know that area at all. It's the town next to Concord. Okay. From the Revolution.
0: Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Concord. Yes. Okay. History coming into play. All right. Bahia, Act-
2: yes. Acton is the town right next door to Concord.
0: Okay. If you live in Boston, how do you say Acton? Is there a funny way to say Just Acton. It? Oh, that's boring.
2: You can say Concord, Boston. There we go. Peabody, Worcester. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I couldn't do the whole thing <laughs> if I, but.
0: I love it. You know, you being um, so East Coast, that makes a lot of sense now to me. Okay. Because when you, we'll talk about, because you worked for the district attorney's office here in Jackson County. For many years. For many years. Mm -hmm. Um, I bugged you for many years as a reporter. And you were very East Coast with me. (laughs) Sorry.
2: Um, You got to, well, not to defend myself before we get there. Defend. Defend away, No, apparently we'll get there later. You want to go through my life before we get there. (laughs) But. uh, There were reasons. I, I, I had reasons for not being. So forthcoming are open on child abuse cases in particular? For sure. Okay. Yeah. No, so I we'll get, get that. There. We'll get there. I, I'm
0: not blaming you at all. You have to tell, especially a reporter like me, I had to hear no sometimes. You know, it couldn't I'm always be good a yes. I'm very good at saying no, actually. Yeah. You are. Yes. You are. I, I'm
1: pretty much
2: an expert at that, especially um, now that I'm a judge.
0: Yeah. So you moved around a lot then?
2: Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. Um, I think we lived in Dearborn for the first five years, then we moved to a place called Troy which is right across from Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills, outside of Detroit. Very nice place, very nice place. Went to school there. And then um, Acton's a a nice town. It's it's a beautiful, small town. I think it was about 20,000 people when Mm -hmm. we lived there. Mm -hmm. Very nice.
0: Do you, is there a place that you really identify with though? Or do you feel like you moved around, not a ton, but you moved around so much that there, was there a place that you consider home?
2: Yeah, Oregon's my home.
0: Oregon is. I mean, now.
2: I guess we'll get there, but I, I've spent more time in Oregon than I've spent any other place yeah. during my life. Yeah. So I'm pretty much, if I'm not a native Oregonian because I wasn't born here, I've been here since 1991.
0: Okay. I think you're probably an Oregonian at okay. this
2: point. Okay, if okay. You, if you'll grant I mean, me not run. I don't run that um, committee. I'm not right.
0: ahead of that, but okay. I, I would say you are well, an you. Oregonian now. Okay. So what, uh, what college did you go to?
2: Initially, I went to Boston College, Okay. and I was there for one year, and then I transferred to Michigan and went okay. back. I wanted to go to the University of Michigan. That had always been kind of okay. like my A dream. Yeah, my father went there and graduated from there. I went there. I think I graduated 25 years to the day that he graduated from Michigan.
0: Nice.
2: So it was pretty cool. Our lives have paralleled in some ways.
0: Okay. What made you, I'm assuming at this point, you're thinking you're going to be an attorney. No?
2: No. No, really? No, what, no. Were you, what, what were you going know, to school in, for? You know, it's interesting because I think when I was younger, uh, junior high, high school, people around me all thought I was going to be an attorney. And when I went to college, I actually, um, one of the reasons I transferred from uh, Boston College to Michigan, beyond the fact I wanted to go to the University of Michigan, I, right. did, I did really well at Boston College my first year there um was they had a asian studies program chinese language and i saw it as an opportunity to specialize i was already a double major in political science and history show so off. i went to um michigan and got a double major in chinese and asian studies i'm not trying to show off i'm just telling you why you're, i did you're
0: are you the oldest do you have siblings
2: i do have siblings are you the oldest I am the oldest mm.
0: shocker overachiever Are you,
2: you're into this whole birth order thing, I really right? am
0: because it says a lot about it says a lot about I think your character hmm. I'm the baby so I demand all the attention right I want it all on me I I was the look at me guys I'm gonna put on a play And look at what I'm doing now in life. Are
2: you the baby of three or four or just the second child? Just one. Because if you're the second child, it's just a whole competition thing. I mean, I read Lehman's book, so (laughs) I understand all this. And my sister and I, it's a lot different because we had a lot different dynamic growing up because of events that occurred.
0: You just have one sister? I have
2: one sister. She's two years younger than
0: me. Okay. Does she like the spotlight?
2: Uh, She's... uh, what do you mean like the spotlight? I just, I Define. have an older brother uh-huh.
0: and he, I, you know, we were very competitive, but again, I just, I have this, maybe it's because I'm a Sagittarius. I don't know. I just always had this, like, I wanted to be on stage my whole life.
2: I don't think she's uncomfortable doing those things. And she does public things. And uh, I know she was on the Asante board and.
0: <sighs> just, just a, just a question. Is she yeah. local? Does she live here?
2: Yeah. She oh, lives here too. nice. What's her name? Jennifer?
0: Jennifer. Jennifer, yeah. we'll talk. We'll okay. get the real can, dirt you, you, on David. Yeah,
2: actually, get, get my sister in here. That'd be great. <laughs> you get all the dirt okay. you want.
0: Okay, we're, we're, we, we digress. Um, okay. You, you go to University of Michigan, mm-hmm. double major, Asian Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, no really urge to be an attorney at this point.
2: No, I thought I was going to go overseas mm-hmm. and uh, look for a job in China. That was my goal.
0: Why did people think you were going to be an attorney when you were younger? What was it about you that people were like, oh, he's definitely going to go to law school?
2: Um, well, did you like a, to argue? That's a good word. <laughs> I'm fairly good at arguing, logic, um, and uh, I'm talkative, loquacious, whatever you want to call it. Okay, good word. Um, yeah, I can, I can speak, so... Mm-hmm. I think they thought, based on my demeanor, my disposition, that I would make a good attorney.
0: Okay. Like, did you do debate team or anything like that in high school? No,
2: I think it was just a matter of um, we were really heavily tracked back then. Um, I went to Acton-Boxborough Regional High School, which was an amazing school. Mm -hmm. At one point, it was selected as one of the top 50 high schools in the country. Wow. Yeah, it was great. It's a great place. I'm sure it's a great place now. And I had some great teachers growing up absolutely fantastic teachers um so you know freshman year kind of was like a review for me going to college because my high school was so good well i you know it's kind of unfair right you're competing with kids who didn't go to great schools sure so i've always looked at it from that perspective as well because you know what's fair what's not fair um you know, just my—I think the way they they saw me handle myself and talk in class and my verbal abilities, I thought, oh, he'll be an attorney. Maybe okay. my personality—I don't know. That
1: makes sense. I mean, sense. I look
2: back at my high school yearbook, and it, they're all talking about me being a lawyer or a judge. I mean, How that's funny. the funny. Oh yeah,
0: that's funny. So what switched for you then? Because you were going for Asian studies. Well,
2: what happened? I think was I went into. um University of Michigan, and I started taking classes in Chinese language, East Asian history, um, just literature, awesome th- awesome classes taught by some really great professors. And I thought, you know what? I think China's the next big opportunity. I was actually reading books back then about how China was gonna open up. He, um, Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China at the time. This is all pre-1989 or and includes early 1989. I thought this was going to be a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hit this wave. I'm going to go there. I had worked at Alliance Corporation. I had worked at um, Wayne Corporation back when they were doing imaging systems in Lowell. So I had a a fairly decent background in some business. It's not like I was taking a lot of business classes, but I thought you know they might want someone like me over there and get in and
0: okay. So,
2: so I, I right after graduation, I think I was home for a week or two. I literally said goodbye to people. Like, I'm probably not going to see you again kind of thing because I'm moving to I'm Asia. i
0: going to Asia. I mean, it's eight,
2: 1989, too. So it's not like we have cell phones or anything like that where you're texting people constantly <laughs> or, you know, oh, I'll pay a f- five extra dollars so that I can do this. I thought I was going to be writing letters to people, and Uh that was it. That was the limited amount of contact I was going to have, maybe come back once a year. Okay. So um, I went there. I was in Hong Kong, um, right on the harbor. It was amazing. A great place. I was staying with um, a business associate of my father's, and we went to mainland China, and I was in um, a place called Guilin, and I don't know if you know anything about Chinese tourism. I don't. Okay, well, if you ever see the pictures where they have the awesome-looking places with like the verdant or the um, the green-covered um, stones and the beautiful river coming through. Yeah. Okay, in Guangxi province, that's called Guilin. It, it's it's a great place. Okay. But it also has a, a a city there and a and a university. Guangxi Daxue is uh, the university that's there. So I want I went there on a trip. And uh, I was looking to get a job in uh, mainland China. I like to talk to the university there and make contacts, that kind of thing. You're how old? I'm 21 years old. Wow! I've graduated from Michigan with my degree, and I'm thinking I can do this. And uh, while I was there that weekend, specifically Tiananmen Square happened.
0: Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Okay, so that changed things for you.
2: Yeah, dramatically. Actually, I was at the university at protests when the Chinese military was coming in.
1: Crazy. That. that
2: was kind of crazy. What did you do? We left. You left. We went back to Hong Kong. And uh, when we were in Hong Kong, we realized they were worried that nobody was going to know that um, this had occurred, wanted us to tell the world, blah, blah, blah. As far as, you know, I didn't know the extent of the, the massacre. Uh, thousands of people killed, all of that. Um, but um, when we got back, it was everybody knew well, what sure. had happened. Yeah, I mean you can't suppress or hide something like that. So I was fairly bitter at that time, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I'd basically wasted my college years, and uh, I uh, tried to make lemonade out of lemons. So I went to their arch enemy at the time, Taiwan.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I flew to Taipei maybe four weeks later. Okay. I went to Taipei and lived in Taipei and taught English there. How long? I think I was in Taiwan for a little over a year.
0: Okay. And then you came home? No. No. (laughs) What happened next?
2: Well, I think it's more what happened during. So I was uh, going to Shida which is their um, teacher's college there. I'm working on my Chinese skills. And then I was teaching at LTTC in Taida, which is their national university, which is a great place, nice university there in downtown Taipei. Just fantastic. And uh, I met a woman who... um, I knew it. Yeah, well...
0: I knew it. Well, if you know me, you know I'm a (laughs) hopeless romantic. So, I mean, there's... You know. so you met a girl right okay
2: and she was a graduate student from france and uh i uh ended up uh i could i could speak some french i wasn't i had studied it in junior high and high school mm-hmm. it wasn't the language i wanted to be speaking i sure. thought i was going to speak chinese the rest of my life <laughs> right. right so mandarin at least and uh so i ended up following her back to um Paris, and we lived in Paris for a year while she was attending graduate school. That's romantic. Oh my gosh! That was pretty cool. Uh, We, uh, you've heard of the Bastille? Yes. Okay. So we had an apartment maybe a block and a half away from where the new Opera is for the Bastille, Mm. and that was. Pretty cool. That was yeah. it was tiny, small, but I didn't care. Right. I mean, we were had a futon and you know, it's one of those tiny apartments where like you uh you shower in the bathroom kind uh-huh, of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So really roughing it. But it was great. I, I love Paris. Paris is a great city. I know people have these uh stereotypes about the French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Parisians. I mean they're they could be a little standoffish and come across as Kind of like East Coast cold people, I guess mm, is how you would put it, right?
0: Interesting. But uh,
2: mm-hmm. I loved it. And then, honestly, once you get outside of Paris, I I thought the French countryside, the people there are fantastic.
0: Awesome. How we're long were you people? there? About a year. A year. Mm-hmm. Then what?
2: Matter of fact, I think I flew in on my birthday and I flew out on my birthday in <laughs> July.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it in was July? kind of like
2: a parallel thing. I'm trying to remember if it had to do with the airline tickets and whether or not you had mm. to do it a certain within okay. a year, that kind of thing.
0: Okay. So then what? What came after Paris?
2: So, um, well, while I was in, excuse um, <laughs> me of showing off. You know what showing off is? Showing off is uh, when you're Chinese. Okay. English is maybe your third or fourth language. Uh. And you take the LSAT in Taiwan at the National University in English.
0: That is showing off. That is
2: so smart. That's scary smart. Those those students were amazing because it's a tough
0: test. Well, yeah. It's a tough
2: test for normal native speakers to take. You know, if you end up in the top 10%, you're like, I'm golden, great, thank you. You know, but I'm with people who probably speak Taiwanese plus Mandarin, maybe another dialect, and English is, and they're taking the LSAT in Taiwan, in Taipei. I'm there doing it.
0: Yeah, it's a total hair flip moment. So I do
2: that, and uh, because I had done that, um, the guy who was the um, dean at uh, Lewis & Clark sent me a letter asking me to apply to Lewis & Clark Law School in Portland.
0: Yeah, which I was going to say is an Oregon school.
2: I'd never been to Oregon.
0: Crazy. I'd
2: never been to the Pacific Northwest. Wow. I think the farthest north I'd been... I'm trying to remember if I'd been to San Francisco at that point or if it was Los Angeles was the farthest north I'd been on the West Coast. I'd never, it was sight unseen.
0: So he, a professor, asked you to take?
2: No, no, no. The dean of the law school, who also was a professor, professor of constitutional law, Dean Cantor, Steve Cantor, really nice guy. Um, They were starting up a program, and uh, they had hired a guy, I think his name was Mark Seidel. This is... This was a long time ago. This is like 27 years ago. It's
1: forever ago. It's
2: forever ago. It's decades ago. But anyways, um, yeah, back when you were in junior high. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he wanted me to apply because they had hired a guy who had experience in East Asian business type law. And he was going to be an assistant professor. And they're going to try to get an international business program going. Okay. So... I'm taking the LSAT in Taiwan. I'm listing that, you know, I've got a Chinese studies background. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So they're thinking, you know, maybe he'd fit in our program. So I'm thinking it's usually a pretty good sign when the dean sends you a letter. So I was like, yeah, I'll apply. Okay. So I applied. And you got in? And I got in.
0: And so on to Oregon you go? Yes, I did. Did your girl come with?
2: Didn't work out.
0: It didn't work out. Didn't work out. Hmm. She stayed in Paris. She did. Oh man, that's kind of heartbreaking. David Hoppy do you have you stayed in touch with her at all? No. No. Aw. that's really that's very sweet and romantic and heartbreaking all at the same time. So you say bye, see ya. Did she not want to? It was a little Oregon? bit different
2: than that, <laughs> but I mean, I don't want to get too personal here. Nah. So.
0: Okay, moving on. I. I'm I mean.
2: That's, obviously, I've been married for 20, I'll be 25 years. That's right. a different part of my life, right? But
0: still, you had this relationship in, in pair. I don't know. I'm just, anyways, we'll move well, on. Well, I had a
2: life pre-marriage. I mean.
0: Exactly. That's my point.
2: That's okay. my point. What's cool is, it's not that I, I, how do I do this? I met someone who I had dated when I was back in college and she's, you know, she's married for 25 years. I'm married for 25 right. years. We have her kids and family the whole bit. But she's a professor down in uh, Las Vegas. And it's just great reconnecting with her and talking with her. Because yeah. we have this common background. And uh, talking academics and things about academics, maybe the law.
0: I think neat. that's my point. I've had relationships where I don't ever want to see that person ever again, ever. Uh-huh. And then you have those ones where, yeah, it is nice to sort of reminisce and, you know, because you probably most likely had this friendship with this person, not just a relationship. So I, I absolutely get it. I mean, I think not taking away anything from the relationship that you're currently in. Right. But yeah, you do have those relationships in your past that they'll always be a part of your life because you had this special moment sure. somewhere in time, I guess. Is somewhere where, in time. Somewhere yes, on Mackinac in- Island,
2: somewhere in time, <laughs> there I was. Okay. I've been there too, it's great. <laughs> Been where? The Grand Hotel oh. at Mackinac Island. Okay. Good nice. movie.
0: Okay. So you moved to Oregon?
2: Yes. Moved and to Portland.
0: Okay. Moved to Portland. How long were you there?
2: Uh, I think I got there in August of 1991. And I think we left in, I'm trying to remember, is it April? April of 95? Okay. Somewhere around there. I'd, okay. It might have been earlier. Ninety-five.
0: Okay. But you're so about th-
2: four, almost four years, three and a half years.
0: So you're working at this college? or What do you mean working? Like, I mean, are you taking classes? Student. You're a law yeah, student. Yeah, I'm a law okay, student. Okay, gotcha. I'm,
2: I'm getting a degree.
0: Are they using your, like, knowledge and expertise, though? No. Okay, not at all. Not at all. Okay. No,
2: I'm literally paying them a ton of money to get a credential <laughs> at the end of this. That's, that's, that's how I look at law school right now okay. is it's almost a form of indentured servitude because these kids are coming out with $150,000, $200,000 in debt. Ouch. And how are you going to pay that back, especially if you already had undergraduate loans? Mm-hmm. So I'm very good at talking to people frankly about whether or not they should go to law school. I let people shadow me, high school students, college students, hey, come watch, whether it's at the district attorney's office I did that, I'd let them intern um, at my um, office as a judge. Listen, you need to see what being a lawyer actually is like. And this is just a glimpse.
0: Do you, you're not trying to deter anyone, but you want to paint a real picture?
2: Real picture. I mean, if somebody, I mean, it's, it's like that question, can you escape your true self? People basically saw in me, the lawyer advocate judge, that I became, mm-hmm. despite whatever efforts I made to do something different. If that's your calling, if that's who you are, mm-hmm. you know, if if that's your ambition and and y- your eyes are open, who am I to deter someone who wants to be a lawyer? For
0: sure. Um, bar exam, did you pass it first go?
2: Nope.
0: What go? Second go?
2: Uh, I was one of those guys that uh, thought Yeah, I don't need to take the bar course. I don't need to Mm. study. Unfortunately, I hadn't taken all the bar prep classes. And uh, just like Laura, I uh, missed by that uh, just like whatever within a tenth of a point.
0: Laura Cromwell, Judge Laura Cromwell. Judge
2: Laura Cromwell. And uh, then uh, I decided, you know what? I'm going to sit down and actually go through a bar preparation course. So I went ahead and took it. The second time, passed it, and then uh, actually, interesting story. Now, this involves my wife. I met at law school orientation. Awesome. Her folks live in um, Santa Rosa. I think it was Petaluma at the time, but um, and uh, she wanted to move down to California to be closer to her folks. So I said, I'll tell you what. If you, I hate studying for the bar because it's like as about as dry as it could possibly okay, be. Okay, I can imagine. So you can imagine it was not a great time. For, anyways, uh, she took it and passed it. So then, yeah, a deal's a deal.
1: Uh-huh.
2: So I literally sat there with the California materials, with the cassettes and the prep materials for the Barbary went into our little tiny study we had in our little 800-square-foot home uh-huh. and uh, studied for hours a day and took it and passed and the passed California it. bar.
0: Okay so how did you get to Oregon then? I mean you've already been in Oregon but you moved down to California?
2: No. Oh. So what happened is after law school there was a man, an attorney who's still an attorney, very nice guy, Doug Osborne in Klamath Falls, who agreed to hire both of us.
0: Oh, okay. For the district attorney's office no, or no, a firm?
2: No. no. There's, this is a long story. But anyway, <laughs> so Candy and I both got jobs there. In I Falls. I passing the bar. Okay. And initially, um, I got part of the public defender contract.
0: Public defender?
2: I was with the Klamath Defender Services.
0: How long were you there for?
2: Hmm, three or four months. And then uh, what happened was... I was also—I'm trying to remember if I was the city attorney for Chelquin at that time, but uh, what happened was the district attorney Ed Caleb wanted to hire me on. So um, and Judge Beasley was kind of helpful in that regard too, because I think he liked my work, and uh, they were good friends. And
0: uh, I remember Ed Caleb.
2: Great, great guy. Great guy, great Super guy. Fun. I can't, I can't speak highly enough of Ed. So um, I got hired on at the DA's office just a few months in. I had done a pretty cool trial with uh, Mark Sario, Mark Cusario. And uh, he had told Ed that, you know, we should be hiring this guy. Cool.
0: So. And your your wife's name is? Candy. Candy. And Candace. she worked, Candace, she worked for the public defender's office too? No, no,
2: no, no, no. I did the contract. You did She that. did bankruptcy law. Oh, okay. So what happened was... Um, I think we would both done some bankruptcy at the Lewis and Clark Legal Clinic. I'd done legal clinic a couple times. I was, I wanted to be. I mean, I wanted to be litigator mm-hmm. kind of. Um, and she uh, was really good at it. She liked it. She was good at it. And uh, eventually, she got offered the uh, position of bankruptcy trustee.
0: Fantastic.
2: Yeah, so that was fantastic.
0: What brought you to Jackson County then?
2: So, she had the bankruptcy trustee position, and uh, what happened was um, she wanted to move, mm-hmm. and she didn't like, uh, I don't want to put it that way, Klamath Falls was not for her.
0: Okay. It's not for everybody. Right. Southern Oregon's not for everybody.
2: But it should be. The Southern <laughs> Oregon's awesome. It is pretty fabulous. It is the best place in Oregon. It really is. By far. But um, that part of Southern Oregon wasn't for her and she wanted to move and she could do a trusty job pretty much anywhere. Very cool. So I mean I think she had Lake, Klamath, some parts of Jackson, Josephine County, maybe Lane County. I don't remember at the time. So um, just basically upped and moved and I got a job. I actually worked here for Dennis Richardson for a few months.
0: Oh really?
2: And what I told him at the beginning was because we did it on kind of like a probationary basis. I wasn't sure that I wanted to do what the work his firm was doing, and I said, you know, if I if there's an opening at the district attorney's office, I'm going to apply.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm just going to let you flat. I mean, I was blunt. I'm and I'm a blunt person, so I was like, if there's a if there's an opening there, I'm going to apply. Oh, okay. And then in August, I think we moved over here in May, and then in August there was an opening for a DV prosecutor at the uh, Jackson County DA's office. Domestic violence Mm -hmm.
0: prosecutor. Yes. How long did you work for the DA's office for Jackson County?
2: Uh, From August 31st of 2000 to December 12th of 2014.
0: You're very good with dates, David Hoppe. I
2: have a pretty good memory.
0: Seems so, yes. In the district attorney's office in Jackson County, you're handling, did you handle all domestic violence cases for the entire time you were there? Okay.
2: Matter of fact, what happened was, um, I don't know if you remember Matt Chancellor.
0: I do. Okay.
2: So Matt was DV prosecutor at the time, and he um, wanted to stay in the position another year. I wanted to get into it right away Mm -hmm. because I was worried about did end up happening so it got to be another year and I'm like hey I I need to get in there and that's what I was hired for and then uh, I finally got it like in October I think October 1st of 2001 and got in there to be the DV prosecutor and then lo and behold a felony opening ended up coming up at that time and I just started the job I didn't Mm. have that experience and so we were competing for the same job, so Yikes, and he, he ended up getting that over me.
0: So. so in the years you were with the DA's office, um, mm-hmm. some of the memor- the more memorable cases, um, what are maybe one, two What's one that really sticks out for you?
2: Well, it's a, well, kind of I think Lisa and uh, Laura have stolen my thunder on some of this stuff. really? Right? Well, because you asked uh, Judge Grife
0: Judge Grife
2: and she said the Josh Peters case and yes. then you asked judge Cromwell and uh it was she,
0: Huddleston, right?
2: She said the uh, yeah, Huddleston case. She said the Huddleston case. So.
0: And you worked with I'm, her on that one or no? No, you were the judge on that one.
2: No, I was I was I was the guy. I mean, I'm prosecuting Huddleston, okay. Peters, the whole bit. Laura and I were co-counsel.
0: Co-counsel. Yeah. And then Lisa was the defender on
2: The Peters case. The
0: Peters case. Mm -hmm. And so those are two that stick out for you? Well,
2: since you've already heard about those cases. (laughs) Well, not from
0: your perspective.
2: It was interesting. Josh Peters was my first solo homicide, and uh, it was a really interesting trial because they just wanted to totally go bench, stipulate to everything. It was almost like a stipulated facts trial, but with um, the EED defense. And, you know, I watched your podcast with um, Lisa. I have kind of a different take on the whole situation.
0: Okay. What's your take? It was heartbreaking for me only because of what unfolded when the sentence came down.
2: Okay. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. A little bit different for us when, and one of the reasons it's hard doing a murder trial because the victim's not there. Exactly. So one of the things I tend to do in jury trials, especially, is the first witness will be the mother, and we put a photo of the deceased into evidence. And we have that out there so that the jury sees there's a real person there. Right. right. That, this is the person that's not here, but you need to be thinking about this person because that's what this case is really all about. Mm-hmm. That case was much more kind of like a legal argument regarding whether or not this constituted you know extreme emotional disturbance or distress, and uh, got bogged in down into details factual details, and things where it wasn't so victim focused and yes he he did show remorse and he did call and write the letter and all those things but i don't know if you remember how the the murder took place I do okay so he he has her kneeling in a bathroom with a gun to the back of her head, mm-hmm. asking her twice if she wants to die shoots her and then shoots her again to make sure to me the kind of power control dynamic of that being an old DV prosecutor I mean, this was 15 years before Me Too and all the stuff that's come up about, you know, people in positions of power doing horrible things to women, right? I didn't see that really as a EED. There are other situations that I've done that I thought, geez, that's interesting. Like, um, let me give you an example of an EED case I did many years ago, um, which wasn't really EED because a guy lived.
0: An EED is Extreme Emotion, Emotional Distress.
2: Or Disturbance. Yeah. Disturbance, okay. I don't remember exactly what they call it in organ law because I haven't done it for a while. <laughs> but on the EED, you're trying to reduce a murder, which is 25 years to life, to a manslaughter in the first degree, which is 120 months, which is 10 years. Okay, under measure 11, minimum mandatory. Okay. So on that situation, um, man comes home, sees his wife sleeping with another man in bed. Goes out to the garage, gets his gun, loads it up, gets his gun, escorts the guy out the front door. But as he's leaving, he shoots him in the groin.
0: Shoots him in the groin?
2: Yeah, let's just put it. Ooh. Let's put it euphemistically in the groin.
0: In the groin. In the groin. Okay. Noted.
2: Noted. So he didn't die. Mm. So, and he had some injury, the extent of injury, don't know permanent consequences, but not a good situation. no. For anyone okay well initially people were talking and i mean i remember i mean meeting with people over and over again there was discussion about this not being a a prison case i'm like no i'm sorry you shoot somebody in jackson county my county you're going to prison okay if it's self defense that's one thing or okay. defense of others it's another thing but this was kind of like the classic eed It's manslaughter when the man comes home and sees that and shoots um, Mm -hmm. the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It goes to 10 years. I didn't really have that scenario here because the guy didn't die. So what I did was it's 40% of the time for the 120 months versus the 300 months or the 25 years versus the 10 years. So I transposed that situation onto this and did, what was it? 40%. Forty percent. I'm trying to remember if it was instead of 120 months, I did. Um, it was 40 percent of that. What, it, what if it was three years or 36 months or?
0: Don't ask me to do math.
2: Or actually, it wasn't even on the 120. It was 40 percent of 90 on the assault one because it's knowingly or serious cause serious physical okay. by shooting somebody with a deadly weapon. So yeah, I did 36 months because four times nine is 36. Okay. So he went to prison. And that happened
0: he, in Jackson County.
2: That happened in Jackson County. <laughs> See, a lot of these cases, when you talk about these high-profile cases, those are the high-profile cases that you know about because mm-hmm. they were publicized or, for whatever reason, they became prominent in media, whether it's the Auchincloss case or Huddleston, which obviously was a huge case. Mm-hmm. I did lots of cases for adult sexual assault and child abuse that the public's never right. heard of.
0: And do you think that's a good thing?
2: In general, uh, our policy was not to publicize child abuse cases because honestly, a lot of times, the perpetrators would, you'd be able to figure out who the perpetrators were, the relationship, and um, that just was how we handled it.
0: Is there a lot of child abuse in Jackson County?
2: Sure, there's a lot of child abuse in Jackson County.
0: It's kind of sad. Yeah. And it's a Kind of, it's really sad.
2: Well, I mean, the stats that you're always hearing is one in four one, girls and one in six boys. I think it might actually be more on the boys, but boys are much more hesitant or reluctant to report sure. than girls. I think it's um, prevalent. I, uh, and you know how, do you want to know what the litmus test is on that? Or the, um, you know how I know? So I will do, I'm a judge, and I will do a uh, sexual assault trial.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm fairly fairly good at understanding, you know, that this can be traumatizing to people to discuss these types of issues. Um, so I'll have them raise their hands if they feel like they can't send that particular jury. I mean, I had like five women out of a pool of 30. And I'm not talking, you know, 30 women. That was just Five of the women in the pool of 30 or 36 raised their hands, and I went out on hall and talked with them. I had seven year old women breaking down and crying, having them leave the other way, excusing them. Aww. There's just, it's, there's a lot of child abuse that's occurred, sexual assault that's occurred, and it has life, lifetime repercussions.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what
0: was the motivation for you to become a judge?
2: Oh well, you know that's kind of a funny thing too, because my parents bring this up, and you can look back and talk with my friends. Apparently, i talked about being a judge or wanting to be a judge earlier. I remember actually applying to um, college I think it was and this was when I was applying to Boston college because I think Michigan was just like rejected you know <laughs> you, you don't meet our first cut, so right don't, right don't even write a essay um, they ask you well what What's your best quality or character or what part of you is? I think I said judgment. Hmm. Weird thing for a 17-year-old, right? But just having a level of discernment, which is hilarious because 17-year-olds don't know anything, really, as far as life experience. They may have been traumatized and been through a lot, but the wisdom you accumulate through decades is, you know, you're a much different person than you were at 21, right? Agreed. Okay. So, which is why I'm kind of in favor of people being judges when they're in their 40s and 50s and not earlier
0: based on life experience yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. because
2: i think you gain a level of discernment and self-knowledge and uh wisdom and you're able to bring that with you to your job
0: right i mean as judge you have to be able to look at all sides
2: Mm -hmm. well you hopefully you learn to do that as an attorney as an advocate hopefully okay um but as a judge yeah you definitely looking or listening to all sides in a matter and trying to make the best decision possible.
0: And you say, uh, you said this a few times now, instead of saying an attorney, you say advocate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's how you...
2: Well, you know, I don't want to get into that situation where I'm saying, well, there's litigators and then there's, you know, mm-hmm. lawyers. and it. Advocates are people who will come into court and fight for you.
0: Yeah, that's what you did.
2: That's my career.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you see um, especially right now there's so many organizations um, that exist in Jackson County that help with I want to call them survivors mm-hmm. of whether it's domestic violence or or assault or child abuse right um, there are a lot of different organizations that come into play that I'm sure you've worked with over the years, you know Casa being one of them and mm-hmm the Hope Equestrian Center, and all of these incredible organizations that really do try to be that safety net.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a nice thing to see.
2: Yes, absolutely. Can't disagree. I mean... Um,
0: Speaking from the advocate side of right. things. Lots of, a lot of advocates here.
2: Well, and when I was a prosecutor, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I think I announced our no-drop policy in Klamath County for domestic violence cases back in 1996.
0: No drop, meaning?
2: Meaning, evidence based prosecution. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you, but this is the way things used to be. Okay. Um, what would happen is a woman would get beat up on the weekend, and the man would get arrested, and the police officer would hand a card to the woman, and if she wanted to follow through with charges, she had to contact the district attorney's office. So you'd write, hold for victim, waiting for them to come in. Wow. Well, I mean, I think they were thinking, well, we're not going to do this case if we don't have a testifying witness. Sure. Well, we kind of, that went by the wayside, and we started doing what we call, um, I shouldn't say evidence-based prosecution, because hopefully all prosecution would be based on evidence. but. Um, Prosecuting cases regardless of whether there was going to be cooperation from the victim. Hmm. Not so easy to do on an adult sexual assault or child abuse case, For but sure. um, on domestic violence cases and especially if you get outside testimony and prior incidents and th- th- those kinds of things, 911 uh, calls, whatever you needed. And if you can make the case, you went forward. Okay. So that was a big change. That's actually like a, a sea change. Yeah, this is you know this is all about the time of uh, VAWA, Violence Against Women Act. Uh-huh. All this stuff happening during that time in the mid '90s. So uh, I remember doing that, and then um, I was on domestic violence council, and I, w- I was the chairperson of the Jackson County Council Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. What's a title? As we changed the name from the DV Council. <laughs> well, which is good though, because sexual violence, obviously can be part of domestic violence, and it actually can be on its own too. But um, I chaired that and served on that, and I helped draft the mission statement and dealt with the Dunhouse issue when they were having problems with warrants and did a lot of stuff on that. And uh, also I served on the child abuse team. So um, I preside over um, the multidisciplinary team meetings where we're deciding Mm -hmm. cases, case by case, on that for many years and I also uh, served on the sexual assault response team for adult sexual assault, Susan Moen, and I served on the Southern Oregon Sex Offender um, Supervision Network or Sex Offender Supervision. Yeah.
0: Well, good work.
2: Yeah, but when you talk about the nonprofits, it's great. That's awesome. And to help victims or survivors, depending on how you define sure. victim or survivor, that's wonderful. CASAs actually play a specific role in the courtroom. Yes. Because they work with that particular child and are the advocate, even if they're not attorneys, mm-hmm. for that child, which is great. That's fantastic. It's it's a wonderful role in, you know, doing God's work there. So that's fantastic. But the nonprofits, that's all good, but that's not really – I mean, I'll, I go to the charity events because – uh, they're doing great work and, mm-hmm. and love the people who are doing that uh, the goodness of their heart because they're definitely not doing it for the money
0: exactly they aren't yeah
2: but the county councils and committees that I served on and worked on and chaired that's a uh, that 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 type of background gets you to dealing with um, evaluation, looking at evidence. So when I talk about discernment, it also gives you some bearings as to what's important, what's not important, what's provable, what's going to go on from here, and a knowledge of the system or the, the, the background so that you know what's going to happen with the parties involved with the outcome. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I don't necessarily have any gaps or fear regarding, oh, well, what, what will become of this, because I know, I know what's going to happen. Okay. I mean, and you talk about heartbreaking or heart wrenching is the cases where you think, yeah, something really bad happened. Can't prove it. Yikes. And then uh, we're not following through. And uh, now, and DHS might not be following through. Mm. What's going to
0: happen next? Right. That is heartbreaking. But
2: you know, we follow the law.
0: Um, yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up just a little bit. But quick question before we do. Sure. How do you like being a judge?
2: I love being a judge.
0: You seem a little bit more relaxed
2: it's different um relaxed
0: (laughs) it's interesting
2: (laughs) well you know if you think of yourself okay so when i was at the district attorney's office the office manager or the person who became the office manager no she was the office manager at the time gave me a plaque
1: Mm -hmm.
2: about not messing in the affairs of dragons
0: oh okay okay
2: I felt like a dragon slayer a lot of times.
0: Right. Okay. That's where I'm, yeah. I mean. Your days are different now.
2: Yeah, I'm not out slaying dragons. So, you know, you don't have, you know, know, it's hard to explain the, um, it's different stress. I'm making decisions all the time. Mm -hmm. So what I tend to do is try to read up and do research on How do I decide things? How do I avoid stereotypes? How do I look at the evidence and try to see things neutrally? You know, it's interesting because I saw in your podcast list you had, was it it Bill Phillips? Yes, the
0: artist, historian. Okay, so
2: imagine you're a young prosecutor Mm -hmm. and you have a case and the guy's jury questionnaire, what he writes in is, I'm an artist from Ashland. Okay. That's the information you're given. Okay. And then you see this guy and you're thinking, and then he's talking, and so I go back and I talk to my office manager, and actually she wasn't the office manager at the time. I'm like, I've got this guy, he, he says he's an artist from Ashland, but, you know, he doesn't really seem, you know, I, I, I think he'll be a solid juror. Well, he ended up being the four person on the jury. And uh, mm. what I, I guess I didn't realize is if I just relied on stereotypes, I think in general, most people are like, eh, maybe you want yeah. to stay away from that. Yeah. Teachers in general because, I mean, there's lots of reasons. I mean, you could do all the research. I'm not saying I ever exclude teachers because they were teachers or lawyers. You probably don't want a lawyer on your journey. Or a news person. Or a news person. But artists from Ashton. But, you know, the stereotype was totally wrong on that.
0: Yeah. that's And
2: he is a – so I try – you know, I read Don, Daniel Kahneman about thinking fast and slow. Try to avoid the reflexive, get into the contemplative mode. Uh (laughs) Um, My last uh, book I read was uh, Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets, about how we make decisions Hmm. and how outcomes shouldn't determine whether or not it was a good decision. We should evaluate things based on the evidence.
0: I like it. You're doing good work. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being in this community.
2: Being a judge is a total different ball of wax than being a prosecutor. I bet. The stress level is... uh, different, but it's, it's. plus you're not responsible in a, a way mm-hmm. that you are as a prosecutor or a defense attorney. When Laura comes in here and talks about how stressful Huddleston was, yeah, I spent nearly two years meeting with Ethan, driving to Klamath Falls to meet with him and talk with him mm. so that I could just build a relationship and talk with him so that he would eventually be able, two years later, to talk about what happened that night. Right. That didn't happen at the beginning. That took years, years. of work. Poor years kid. Years of work. Yeah, you know, he's a fantastic kid. That's good. That's Great good kid. to hear. very courageous.
0: All right, David Hoppy. final three. Okay. Best, best advice you've ever been given?
2: Uh, that I took?
0: <laughs> <laughs> or not.
2: Well, you like Ed Caleb, so let's talk about Ed Caleb. Um, love Ed Caleb. Love Ed Caleb. Okay. He told me to focus on what was important. I was a misdemeanor uh, deputy at the time, we'll call it that and doing district court back when we had district court and uh he said you know what there's only really two cases he he said that were important the duallys as he put them the duis mm-hmm. and the uh, assaults
1: mm-hmm.
2: everything else process get it done get the best result okay but you need to focus on the person crimes and the duis
1: mm-hmm.
2: so i pretty much took that advice to heart and to me He got me going the whole mode that person crimes are important. Well, drug crimes are important. Property crimes are important. All these crimes are important. But when I got to the DA's office, I wanted to do domestic violence prosecution. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do adult sexual assault prosecution. I wanted to do child abuse prosecution. I volunteered for that. I knew there was an opening and asked the boss. And uh, specifically, I think I replaced Beth at that time as child abuse prosecutor in 2003. So... Thank, I wanted to do those right. things.
0: Right. Thank you, Ed Caleb. Thank One you, of my Ed favorite Caleb. DAs. I just absolutely I miss that guy. Loved, Great guy. Loved. Larger than him. life. Let's put it L- that way. Yes. I. Absolutely. Not only six
2: foot six, but larger than life.
0: Okay. If you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what mm-hmm. would bring you back here? What would you miss the most? Uh,
2: miss the most. Well, I've always said home is where the heart is.
0: Mhm. I like that. So my whole
2: family's here. Mhm. Um. And I love it here. I really, I really do love it here. Compared, to, obviously, compared to Portland or to Klamath Falls, other places I've lived in Oregon. Um, this, I tell people, this is the land of milk and honey. <laughs> if uh, my son, um, well, I have multiple sons. I have two sons, so I should say several sons. I, uh, if they end up moving to, I don't know, let's say San Diego or some place like that, and I'm done with judging, uh-huh. or I've done my Regular judging, I've gone to senior status. I would like to be there like my parents were there for the grandkids growing Mm. up. So I might leave for that purpose. If they move back here, though, I'd probably stay here or or move back if I'd already moved. It's pretty much dependent on, I can, I mean, I've lived all over the world. I can live wherever I want, basically. And to me, freedom will be the ability to choose Mm -hmm. where I want to live. So, you know, if look, you know, hopefully I get elected again in, uh, 2020, serve another six years. I'll have a serious decision to make at that time as to whether or not I, I, I want to retire after about 30 years of service to Jackson County, or if I want to go for another awesome. six years, but, um, or I could do plan B retirement. So hopefully we'll have the financial freedom so that we can choose to live where we want to live. It's a and nice be, idea. That would that's the plan. We'll Life go for does it. not always work no, out as, as planned. No, it doesn't.
0: But you always got to have a plan. Oh, always. All right. Final meal, final drink. What would that look like?
2: Can I ask clarifying questions?
0: Please. All right. Fo- these are follow-up. These are district attorney style questions. I feel it.
2: Actually, kind of more judge type. Oh, questions, ju- right? judgey you're questions. Trying, you're trying to figure out what the person's actually saying or what they're actually asking you.
0: Okay, go for it, judge.
2: Okay. Um, when you say final meal, am I alone? Am I with other people? Am I about to be executed? <laughs> I mean, final meal has a, a connotation. I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. It's a
0: good question. So, I guess honestly, it can be whatever you want. I always feel like it's, it's your last day on earth, and hopefully, you are surrounded by people. People that you love? You love.
2: Okay. If it was a social event.
0: Okay. <laughs> sure. Let's say it is.
2: Social event. Social and event. We'd probably all be at picnic tables with newspaper spread out and um, eating crab.
0: I knew it.
1: Well, when I was a
2: youth, many, many, many years ago, um, we used to go down to Ocean City, Maryland for vacations, and we'd go crabbing in the bay.
1: Love it. These are
2: tiny little blue crabs. Uh Uh-huh. And, man, I must have had tiny fingers at the time. Because if you've ever seen the blue crabs, there's not much no, to right? them No, they're small. I would, like, get every speck of meat out of those blue crabs. Mm. And I was one of those kids that would just pile up the meat, you know. You would go on oh. to the next crab. Oh, yeah. And so, and then I never even had a Dungeness crab until I was 20 years old. And then when I moved out here, I'm like, these are great. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. And yeah. it's mostly meat. So picking, it's... Not very hard. And then and I like king crab too. It's I think a lot of times with my family we'll do king crab around holidays because it's easier. Yeah. But Dungeness crab because – but that's only if I'm with a bunch of people because I, I'm one of those guys who get to eat six or eight crabs. <laughs> I went to a crab feed. I ate four crabs. I stopped out of almost boredom because everybody else is done. Oh. and I'm still eating picking crab and at a certain going. point it's like, uh, you know, because it's just protein. I mean, just eating so meat good. protein. It's yeah. just amazing. But it's a great social thing to do.
0: It is. It is. Lovely. Okay.
2: So, if I was alone <laughs> or uh, it was like my last meal I'm about to be executed. Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, part of me, when uh, the president of France, uh, François Mitterrand, when he was going to die, he had a like a grapefruit sized tumor in his abdomen and he didn't want he just wanted to die he just didn't want to do anything more so um there's this great esquire magazine article about his last meal okay i think one of the reasons they did the article is he ate this forbidden bird it's this tiny little bird and they cook it up and you have to actually wear like a veil while you're eating it because it's a sin to eat this particular bird never had it i have no desire to eat illegal foods okay
0: same
1: okay okay
2: but one of the things and it had oysters and all these other things my wife and i were kind of like perplexed he had a roast capon it's a male chicken kind of thing that's popular in france like roast chicken that's not like Mm -hmm. and then you know as you get older and and you're thinking and we've talked about this several times since then that was his comfort food. Yes. That was his comfort food growing
1: mm-hmm. up. Okay,
2: mm-hmm. I had lots of, my my mother could cook. My wife's a great cook. She's awesome. Um, but uh, when I lived in Taiwan, there's this particular food, and they have in Hong Kong, and I've seen it in San Francisco, but I haven't seen it elsewhere. It's called Sam Baofan, mm-hmm. or um, you know, I think Cantonese say Sam Baofan. It's three packages or three treasures rice, so I don't know if you've been to San Francisco, Chinatown, you're walking by and you see all the roast ducks hanging and the roast pork yeah. and the roast chickens. Uh-huh. Okay. You can usually go into those places and say, I want some buffet. Huh? And uh, they'll bring, um, they'll chop up a piece of pork, a piece of duck, mm. and a piece of chicken Yum. and put it on the white rice and give you the sauce.
0: Fantastic.
2: And that, that to me, in a way, is comfort food.
0: Comfort food.
2: So drink... Well, if I'm doing the social event, uh-huh. I'm probably not going to want to drink this because it wouldn't go well with the, the crab. I'd probably, you know, the Germans have this awesome Chardonnay that's unoaked. That's kind of sweet. It's just wonderful, chilled. That You could drink that with the crab or the uh, French Hef Chablis, which mm-hmm. is amazing with seafood. But honestly, if I'm doing the social event where i will having a crab feed on picnic tables, I'm probably drinking beer. Beer. Whether it's a Widmer, or Hefeweizen. I know you're a whiskey person.
0: I'm an everything person, but beer, beer on a picnic table, yeah. nice day. I mean, come on. Yeah.
2: And how do you beat a, uh we Have fights on a hot day, picking crab out there? Just wonderful. Love it. If I'm not having that meal, if I'm not doing a big social thing, when I did live in France, our, our table wine, our, our daily wine was a wine called Juliana.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's from the Beaujolais region, and it's named after Julius Caesar. So they've been growing grapes there for like 2,000 years. It's not the most prominent you know, best well-known. It's not a Beaujolais premier. It's not the new Beaujolais or anything, but just a regular Beaujolais brand. It's a great red wine. And the only thing I've seen approximating, I guess, after me here would be like, I don't know. I like the Co- Costco Malbec.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: It's like a $7 bottle, but you know <laughs> what? For a table wine, yeah. once again, comfort food, comfort wine. Yeah. And, in general, I think when we talk about best, or we're not talking about going to La Tour d'Agen in Paris looking for this 12-course meal that's amazing. No, you want something that makes you feel good.
0: Makes you happy. Makes you Especially happy. Especially on that last day. Yep. All right. David Hoppy, thank you so much. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, and you can ask your Alexa app to open Offscript. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Offscript. Once again, Jackson County Judge David Hoppy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it.